Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As you know, as most of you know, you can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and at the end of the day, we archive the show. Joining me this morning is Harvard physician Lena Wen, MD, uh, and she's going to be talking to us about her new book, when, when Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnosis and Unnecessary Tests. Also joining me later in the show is licensed clinical social worker Joanne Fleischer. Her new book is Living Two Lives, Married to a Man and in Love with a Woman. But first, Dr. Wen is here with us. And I think what I'm going to do is uh, just uh, share with you what uh, is on the flap of her new book uh, because she reveals how doctors are trained to treat their patients, and in the way that they treat their patients, Dr. Lena Wen exposes how the very first step of medical care, the diagnosis, is inherently flawed, often with grave consequences. Patients, she says, are routinely subject to a form of cookbook medicine, where doctors are trained to zero in on only one symptom or chief complaint, which then triggers a rigid pathway in which the patient is sent on a bewildering journey or formulitic questions and endless tests. So my first question to Dr. Wen is, what is the uh, cookbook approach to medicine, and why isn't it good for us? And besides, Dr. Wen, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Uh, it's great to be with you today and to speak with your listeners. So the cookbook approach to medicine, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to the doctor and or heard of someone going to the doctor and given this whole checklist of questions? Do you have chest pain? Do you have headache? Do you have shortness of breath? Do you have back pain? And you wonder, what's the purpose of all these questions? Why not just ask me about my story and why I'm here to see you? That's the cookbook approach. It's not really listening to the story, but rather uh, just giving this checklist of yes-no questions. And this approach then leads to not necessarily personalized care, rather it leads to the same care that anyone else would be getting, which I argue is not the best care for you. Dr. Wayne, can you give us an example of that and why that doesn't work? Um, I know as a social worker, when you have a client who comes in with a presenting problem, uh, the same approach doesn't work if you're asking yes and no questions to the asking questions that re, uh, require a yes and no answer. 
Right, you, I'm you sure get very you little information that. from your client. You have to ha- ask open-ended questions to that specific client. So, I mean, that's I, this is exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. That doctors nowadays, because of lack of time, have started focusing on yes/no, closed-ended questions because it's just faster, or they think it's faster. But in doing so, they miss the real story of the how and the why and what brought the patient in to be here in the first place. So, I can give you an example, which is of a patient named May who was in her 60s and passed out at the gym after feeling some nausea and stomach pains. But uh, everyone at the hospital kept on asking her about her heart. And before she knew it, she began also thinking maybe it was her heart, and that's why she passed out. And so she went through two days of testing for her heart. But during that time, she got extremely ill. She developed a fever. She developed the worst pains in her belly. And it turns out that she had a raging gallbladder infection. But nobody had found this out because they were so fixated on her heart. And that's why something like this, the cookbook approach, could be actually dangerous because it leads to misdiagnosis, it leads to a delay in diagnosis, and sometimes results in death too. So the real reason why we don't get the answers is because we're not listening to the patient. The doctors aren't listening to the patient's story. In other words, there has to, the doctor has to sit down with the patient and listen to their story if they want to get a correct diagnosis rather than just ordering these tests that they order for everyone. Oh, you have a pain in your, in your stomach, and so there's a whole checklist. What do you call them? Al- the algorithm of, the- of diagnosing uh, patients' uh, illnesses? That's exactly right, that you don't want to be treated exactly the same as somebody else who may have some element of the problem that you came in with. Just because you have chest pain doesn't mean that you should be treated the same way as a 96-year-old with a history of, uh, of coronary bypass. I mean, it, the treatment and the diagnosis needs to be personalized to you. And we know this to be true, actually, because we know that 80% of diagnoses can be made just based on your history, the reason why you went to see the doctor in the first place. And that's why it's so critical for the doctor to get your diagnosis is correct, and to get your diagnosis correct, your doctor has to listen to you, okay, has to carefully so probe you. I mean, doctor, it sounds so simple, and I think you mentioned in your book you went to a cocktail party, and there, there was a group of people, uh, doctors, but there was a combination of different professions, engineers, teachers, and everybody uh, agreed to this kind of approach, but you then talked to a bunch of doctors, and they, they disagree with you. They have to, they, they say that they, they don't um, view establishing a relationship with the patient as that important or building up the trust so that you can get information and the patient can tell their story. Why? We used to do that 30 years ago. What happened? We've gotten away from this. And actually, I would say that doctors in general, they don't disagree with our approach in the sense that what doctor wants to actually say that they disagree with the idea of doctors listening, right? Uh, Our book is called When Doctors Don't Listen, and doctors can look at the book and say, oh, this isn't realistic. I don't think this is going to work, but they're not really going to say, oh, well, I don't want to listen to my patient. In fact, I think doctors in general are pretty egotistical, but I mean, I'm a doctor. I can say that. (laughs) And I think doctors tend to believe that they do listen, but they don't listen as well as they should. And that's something that I really think the patients need to take um, control of and get their doctors to listen better. So how are we placing the onus, though, on the patient? Because, I mean, I think patients have to take responsibility for their health care, which, you know, which is what you're saying as well. But if you have, and I think you say this in the book, you have a whole um, group of doctors, and I don't know, who are trained in a certain way. 
and this is how they're trained to give you a battery of tests to do the cookbook uh, a diagnosis and uh, provide a, a recipe, I guess, of treatment or whatever it is. It's all very structured and very ordered. How do you go up against that? I mean, you're going in there as a patient. You're very vulnerable. You don't. You're fighting sometimes. You don't. I mean, it's very difficult to kind of take that that stance, I think, from the patient's point of view. How do you mix it? You know, how, how does the patient do that? So several things that I was thinking as you were talking. The first is that, in a way, it's kind of unfair, right? I mean, you're the patient. You're, you're going to your doctor as the professional. Your doctor is the professional, and you should have your doctor be better. And I think that's absolutely true. If you are fortunate enough to find this ideal doctor who really listens to you, who gets you, who spends time with your story, then that's fantastic. That is the ideal, that we want doctors to get better. But what I emphasize in the book is that not all of us have that choice, and a lot of us are stuck with the primary care doctor that we have because of insurance, or you have to see the doctor that you see in the ER because that's who's there, or the specialist because that's who you're referred to. And you don't always have the choice of this ideal doctor, but there is something that you can do in order to get your doctor to be this ideal doctor, to really listen to you. And so the book, the When Doctors Don't Listen, talks about how you can go about getting your doctors to listen. And so some of the things that we talk about are the eight pillars to better diagnosis, that you have to follow these eight pillars to get better care. But really, it's about practice. Changing your mentality and the mentality of your doctor doesn't happen overnight. And Catherine, you brought up a really good point that patients, when they go to the doctor, are ill. I mean, they have you know, you might have a splitting headache or you might have really bad chest pain or you might be going with your family member and seeing them in anguish is no fun either. And that's why it's so important to practice these pillars and practice the tips that I talk about where every single time, not just when you're critically ill, but also when you go see your doctor for a routine appointment and even when you're not going to see your doctor. My book has exercises that you can do even at home to your loved ones so that you can be prepared when you next go see your doctor. So in other words, the patient, we, I mean, we have to practice. We have to be prepared. It's our responsibility, and I agree with you. I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the primary care physician or uh, listening to you, I find, and my experience has been, and I've had a lot of experience. I've had experience at Mass General, which is a fantastic hospital, uh, and I've always had a good experience there, but I find that in my let's say if I'm in my primary care position, I don't find that she necessarily listens to me um, and isn't that, or isn't that interested. In, and it's not just this particular primary care physician, but many of them. But if I have something serious and I wind up at Mass General, for instance, or, people, or family members, that's when the physician actually does sit down and listen to you and looks at you and talks to you and you feel, I mean, that's always been my, but do you have to get to that point or can you get the same kind of care just with your local physician or your primary care physician? You know, people tell me all kinds of stories about where they think they get better care or from whom. Some people say it's older doctors. Some people say it's younger doctors. Some people say it's doctors in a certain area. I mean, I'm pleased that you get good care at Mass General, which is where I work. But um, I don't think it's about where you get care or even under what conditions you're going to get care. I actually think that you should get this ideal care. That's a partnership approach where your doctor really listens to you every single time with every single doctor. And I wrote this book where doctors don't listen because I really believe that you can make it happen as a patient. And so um, I actually started writing this book because my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer that was metastatic, and she was found to have metastatic cancer after a year of misdiagnosis. 
And I saw firsthand what it means to be a caregiver who feels really disempowered and out of control with their, with their health. And so I wrote this book to try to teach patients the, le- the lessons that I learned and the lessons that my mother learned. And I really do believe that if you start practicing now, especially when you're well, that that's the way to make sure that even when you're ill, that you get the best care possible for you and your loved one. So what, you're a doctor. When you go to the doctor, how do you know, I mean, it's going to be a different kind of a relationship because you're both in the same profession, but I assume that that's the kind of, when, if you're sick or you're not feeling well, how are you as a patient? What do you do? So I try to be a partner with my doctor. I think, you know, doctors always say that doctors are the, are the worst patients because they'll come in and say, oh, here's what I think I have and here's the medication that I need. I don't think that's, that's the right approach to do things. Um, and in the same way, I have patients who are patient advocates who really are, you know, strong, empowered patients, and they think that the best way to get care is to look up their diagnosis on WebMD and to, um, or to Google their symptoms and to plot these bunches of papers in front of the doctor and say, here, this is, the, this is my diagnosis. This is what I have. I'm afraid that you're going to misdiagnose me, um, so I diagnose myself. I mean, I think that just puts up the doctor's back, and I try to avoid the same thing when I, try, when I go to the doctor. Instead, what I would advocate for is to become really skilled at telling your story. Um, we know that 80% of diagnoses can be made based on your history, but also that doctors interrupt after something like eight to 10 seconds of your starting to tell your story. And so what I try to do when I go to the doctor is I practice my story. I write it down. I rehearse it. I mean, you can imagine that if you only have 10 seconds with your boss or with your senator, that you would really rehearse that pitch, right? But patients don't really rehearse before they see their doctor. And the doctor comes in and says, how are you today, Mrs. Smith? And Mrs. Smith says, oh, I'm fine. My nephew is visiting over the weekend, and we made this pie. I mean, that's, you're wasting that time. And so what I emphasize is the importance of getting that pitch, of, uh, of practicing it in advance, and making sure that you understand what your doctor's thinking. That's what I practice, and that's what I would want my, my patients to come in to me with as well. All right, so we're empowering the patient, and then we have to get the doctor to listen. Sometimes I feel like they don't want to listen to me. That I'm quite, I think you mentioned in the book, you know, you have to question the test. Not necessarily that you're not going to do the test, but if there's a whole barrage of tests that are being recommended for whatever your chief complaint is, you have to question and talk to the doctor about why he or she is ordering the test. I do that, but sometimes I always I, I get the feeling like, why the, from the physician, why are you questioning me? Uh, this is wasting our time. Uh, you know, it's not necessary for me to tell you why I'm getting the test. It's not that they say that, but I feel it, and I feel like I'm, then I begin to feel like I'm a bother, and I don't want to ruin anything that's going to have to do with my getting better. So th- there's always kind of that issue, that balance between questioning and establishing the relationship and at the same time not turning the physician off. That's right. A lot of patients have this fear that if they start questioning anything, that they're going to be the bad patient. My mother was certainly afraid of that. I remember her telling me, oh, I, but, you know, I didn't want to ask about this medication. I didn't understand why I was supposed to take it, but I didn't want to ask about it because I'm, I don't want to be the bad patient. I don't want to bother my doctor. But you know what? Your doctor is there to help you. You have the same goals. And certainly in my experience as a physician and teaching medical students, I have yet to meet one doctor or one nurse who went into medicine for the wrong reasons. I mean, we all went into medicine to try to help our patients. And so 
We're there for the same reasons, and you are the expert on your body. That said, though, there is a way to ask questions that's not defensive and that's not aggressive. I mean, you don't want to come across to your doctor and say, hey, you're a bad doctor. You're misdiagnosing me. That's not really the right approach either. And that's what I try to teach in my book, When Doctors Don't Listen, how to know what your doctor's thinking, um, what is the process of their thinking so that you can insert yourself in their thought process and make sure that you get the care that you need in a respectful but impactful way. So you have to partner with your doctor, right? The doctor has to engage you, and you have to engage your doctor. And this is a joint effort to find out what's wrong with you. And I think you give some wonderful examples in the book, and I think sometimes it's easier for listeners to understand this whole concept if we talk about specifics like some of the examples. Give us some of the examples where patients, um, I know you're an ER doctor, so you, you have to make, I, I imagine, quick diagnoses. Um, but you give examples of where people really kind of got screwed up in their diagnoses because uh, doctors and patients really didn't connect. And so a whole battery, batteries of tests, and it's very costly, and I want to talk about that in terms of healthcare costs, um, just became just overwhelming for many of these patients and, and not very productive in terms of their diagnosis. Anyway, I'm going on and on. But give examples, because those examples that you have in the book of of uh, overdiagnosing, I'm calling it, I don't know what you would call it, um, are, are really good. So, I would call it lack of a diagnosis. Lack of a diagnosis. So, yeah, because we hear so much about over-treatment, and I think that's very true, but it's not so much over-diagnosis that we have a problem with. It's lack of a diagnosis and the wrong focus on the diagnosis. So let me give you an example, which is the one that I start the book with of a mechanic named Jerry who's in his 40s. He wakes up in the morning with a pole in his chest, and he wonders why. Well, he actually was moving boxes over the weekend, and so he developed this pole after moving boxes. But because it was something with his chest and he hears that chest pain is something to be worried about, he goes to his local emergency room. In the ER, the nurse and the doctor say, oh, something is wrong with your chest, therefore it's chest pain. And so they order blood tests, they order an EKG, they order a chest x-ray. He doesn't know what these tests are for. He just gets told that he needs tests done. So he says, okay, fine, let me get my tests done. My doctors know what I'm doing. Then he gets told that he has to stay overnight because they still don't know what's going on. He thinks, well, you know, I'm here this far. I, I might as well stay. So in the morning, he gets repeat of his EKG and his blood work. He runs on a treadmill. And at the end of the day, the doctor comes to him and says, congratulations, you don't have a heart attack. And he says, but I don't understand. You did all these tests. What do I have? And, and the doctor looks at him in all seriousness and says, you have chest pain. And he said, well, you know what? I could have told you that. I came in with chest pain. What is it that I actually have and how can I get better? And that's a story that I hear over and over again, that doctors are so focused on ruling out things. They say, oh, let's make sure you don't have a kidney stone. Let's make sure you don't have appendicitis. But what is the diagnosis? My point that I make in the book over and over is that if the doctor only focused on your diagnosis in the first place, if you only asked about your diagnosis in the first place, that all of that could have been prevented. Jerry, had he asked, would have been told, oh, well, you have a muscle, you have a muscle pull, you have a muscle strain, your EKG looks fine, I don't think you have a heart attack, you can go home. That would be so much better for him to avoid these unnecessary tests, all of which have complications, rather than, um, uh, and to also not go through this whole process of waiting and not knowing actually what he really has. Well, what about the, uh, one of the reasons that doctors give is that they have to 
rule out everything and, and give you all these tests because they're afraid of being sued. Is that a valid reason for doing these tests? or It's a reason that doctors use, but I don't think it's valid. If you are able to make a diagnosis, then you've really ruled out everything. So why not just start with a much simpler and better approach that's actually going to be better for patients as well? You know, doctors do talk about malpractice and the fear of malpractice a lot, but the number one reason for malpractice is lack of communication between doctor and patient. And I strongly believe that every decision should be shared between you, between the doctor and the patient. And if that shared decision-making is present, then doctors don't have to worry about malpractice. What about technology? Let's talk about that because technology, we have technology available in medicine, obviously, much more technology in terms of testing and imaging and all those kinds of things than we did, say, 30 years ago, even, I guess, 20 years ago. So I think you say in the book, and I want you to talk about this, science and technology are good for treatment but not necessarily for diagnosis. What do you mean by that? Right. So people ask me about this, too, because of uh, what, what I write in the book about checklists. And I say that checklists could be harmful for diagnosis. And then people say, no, but I love Peter Pronovost. I love Atul Gawande's <laughs> checklist. And they save lives. And checklists, just like treatments um, and technologies, as you mentioned, they do save lives for treatment. And the reason for that is if you have a complicated surgery, I certainly want to make sure that there's no sponge left in my body afterwards. <laughs> or if I have a complicated chemotherapy or something, I want to make sure that you really follow this checklist and use the latest technology on me, the latest proven technologies that that is. The issue, though, is for diagnosis. We know that 80% of diagnosis can be made based on your history. That's better than any test, any advance, any CAT scan, any blood test that we have out there. And so using a checklist, these yes-no questions and close-ended questions that we talked about earlier, is actually going to be harmful. And that's why it's so important to um, use checklists at the end, at the treatment, and to use technology at the end, at the treatment, but to personalize care when it comes to figuring out your diagnosis. That is well said, and I think this leads us right into healthcare reform because we talk about how expensive healthcare is, but part of the reason is because of all this testing, isn't it? We spend billions of dollars on tests that we don't really need. If, if doctors did exactly what you said, we're concerned with making a diagnosis rather than ruling out what we don't have with all of these tests. So, so let's because there are a lot of mis- um, let's talk about that because in healthcare reform, which of course is the topic of the day, um, if if we kind of followed what you talk about in the book or what you recommend in the book, we would be saving billions of dollars in healthcare, wouldn't we? We'd be eliminating all of these unnecessary tests. If we a proper, know that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We know that seven hundred billion dollars of unnecessary tests and treatments happen every year. That's 30% of all healthcare costs. I mean, we know that healthcare costs are out of control. And if you know that 30% is waste, I mean, that's incredible. And so, yes, absolutely, I do believe that there's a lot that needs to be cut out of our healthcare. There's obesity in our healthcare system as well. But it's not just about cost. It's about getting the best care. And I'm a strong believer that if you aim to get the best care for you, meaning that you get your story across, you get your diagnosis correct, you do only the tests that are necessary for you, 
that that's the way that we're really going to make healthcare reform happen. You should not aim to cut costs just to cut costs. I don't think that's the right way to approach things. But if you aim to get the best care, the most efficient care, that's how we're really going to cut your cost, but also cut healthcare costs for the nation and make everything more efficient and just better. So, Dr. Wen, what now I, I just I think uh, I mean you're really on to something. How much support do you get from the medical community? I know you are at Brigham and Women's in Boston, Massachusetts. You're at Mass General, one of the top either the top, I don't know, you compete with Hopkins and several others, top five hospitals in the country. Are your colleagues and the medical students listening to you and what you have to say? It's a very interesting question, and I'll give you, I, I hope, in, uh, a thoughtful answer to that as well. But um, medical students actually are very much uh, in support of this. The new generation, medical students, young physicians, when I give talks to medical students across the country, people say, oh, this is fantastic. Of course, we should be listening to patients. Of course, we want to partner with our patients. Older doctors, too, this is what they're used to practicing. They're also in favor of it. But um, many people are cynical about, can it happen? And I believe that the only way it could happen, this revolution in healthcare, if you will, the only way it could happen is if our patients are on board as well and if our patients really take the lead and tell their doctors, it's okay to have this partnership approach with me. It's okay. I also want to work with you and help you help me come up with my right diagnosis and help me listen and understand about what I'm doing with my own health care. So I really do believe that this is a movement that's gathering momentum across both patients and nurses and doctors. And it's something that I really encourage all of you to get on board with as well, because it will lead to better health care for you and your loved ones. So as a patient, because as you say, each patient is unique, and you're going to get patients who are well-educated, perhaps others who are less so, some who are in awe of doctors, some who are not. I mean, you get a whole variety of patients. So each person, each patient has to feel comfortable about telling their story. I mean, I'm the kind of patient who feels like I have to get everything in, and did I miss something, and did I, you know, because I, you know, I had a cough here or a pain here, and maybe that should be incorporated into uh, the information so he, he or she can make the right diagnosis. And, uh, you know, so that's the one end of this maybe spectrum. And then the other end is the patient who finds it very difficult to talk to the physician and is, is perhaps overwhelmed by the situation or feels intimidated. So kind of how, what, what, what does a patient do when they're telling their story? Or maybe there isn't a formula. Just uh, tell your own story as you tell it. Right. So you have to do what's comfortable for you. I certainly can't give a script for every patient because, as you said, people are just different in terms of how they communicate. There are some people who never like to go to the doctor and even getting them to go takes a lot versus some patients, um, as you were saying, for, for yourself, you really like to communicate everything. What I do in the book when doctors don't listen, though, is I teach patients how to tell their story because the story is so important. Most people do wonder, though, about how much information is relevant and how should I really tell it. I give tips for telling the story using chronology, for example, and uh, starting at the beginning, ending with an end, using context, explaining your values and how you think about healthcare. These are all very important things to incorporate into the story and practice, practice, practice. So important to rehearse it in advance and making sure that whoever you're telling the story to, even if it's your neighbor or your friend, that they understand it. That's how you can make sure that you're telling it in your own words, but that you're also practicing it uh, well in advance so that your doctor really understands you when you need it the most. 
What about if it's emergency? Because you are an ER physician. Let's say you, um, if you have a chance to practice or you're planning a visit to the doctor, then you know you can, as you say, it's really important to 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 practice and to go over your you know, what your complaint is. But what about if it is an emergency? What about if you're, you never expected it? Uh, you, you know, you get a sharp pain or maybe you are feeling like you're having a heart attack and you get to the doctor and it becomes more, I mean, the onus is more on the doctor to try and find out or make the diagnosis and maybe you, you're not feeling well enough to even offer any information. How does that work? Right, so three things. The first is you're right that the, the onus really is on the doctor, but how can you control who your doctor is going to be? I mean, let's say you have a great primary care doctor, but now you're in the ER and you don't know who this doctor is. You still have to do something. The second thing is that most people think that, oh, if you're in the ER, you don't have time to practice. That's not true. I mean, certainly if you're unconscious or if you're feeling so badly, you don't have time, but the vast majority of time, uh, the patients who come to us in the ER, they are telling us their story. And there is time, even if you're waiting for the doctor when your nurse is drawing your blood or you're waiting in the, in the waiting area, you have time to write things down and practice it. And the third thing is what you just said about um, having emergencies, this is the reason why you have to practice well in advance. You can't wait until you're in that emergency situation to say, oh, how is it that I become an empowered patient again? You really have to learn how to take control of your health care when or well before you really need it. So practice it every single time you go to the doctor and make sure your doctor listens every single time. Well, one way to practice, and we have to say goodbye, but doctor, one way to practice is to get your book because, as you say, you clearly lay out, I mean, it's very clear you give us practical advice on how to do that. Practice your story. Practice your story with your doctor so that you do come up with the diagnoses, the correct diagnoses in, in, in tangent with your doctor. When doctors don't listen, how to avoid misdiagnoses and unnecessary tests. Uh, Dr. Lena Wen, MD, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's a great book, and our listeners can get the book on in online bookstores everywhere. And also, you have a website, so tell us your website so they can go to the website as well. Absolutely. My website is www.whendoctorsdon'tlisten.com, and I would love to hear from you about how you can take control of your health. And, Catherine, thank you for having me on the show today. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Um, our next guest is here with us, but we're going to take a short break. Uh, her, she is uh, Joanne Fleischer, and she's author of Living Two Lives, Married to a Man and in Love with a Woman. I'm Catherine Zopsch, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays live, 10 to 11 uh, Eastern Time, and then we archive the show at the end of the day. My next guest is Joanne Fleischer, and her new book is Living Two Lives. Uh, actually, I think this is an updated version. She had uh, the, the book, this is a new edited version, Living Two Lives, Married to a Man and in Love with a Woman. Um, Joanne was leading the life of a typical suburban wife and mother until she fell in love with a female friend, and her world was turned upside down. And her new book, or the updated version of her new book, is Living Two Lives, describes her difficult process of coming out while being married to a man. And in her book, she addresses issues as same-sex attraction, coming out to husbands and children, and exploring lifestyle options. And those are the things we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Catherine. It's great. And your website is lavendervisions.com as well, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, this is a hot topic. Very, um, and I, I think things have probably changed or uh, since you first wrote the book. Um, so let's talk about, um, first of all, living two lives, married to a man, in love with a woman. That's a very catchy topic. That's your story. Um, what, um, why did you decide to write this book and share well, your story with everyone? Um, I, my uh, story actually happened many years ago um, in uh, 1979, really, was when I fell in love with a woman while I was in a 12-year marriage. And uh, there was very little available for me at that time to turn to to help me figure out what the meaning was to um, kind of normalize some of what I was going through. And um, clearly, looking back on it, it it was so monumental in terms of my life story that it became my specialty. Um, I'm a therapist, and and I've devoted a lot of my writing and my work towards helping women get through this process with some support, and there's a lot more available today than there was back when I went through it. And Joanne, this is really interesting because um, I have two or three close friends, couples, lesbian women, who have a similar story, mm-hmm. and I'm and I similar story in that they were married for many many years, and then uh, and had their children and their babies, and then realized that they were gay and began having a relationship with the women, and then eventually, well, in one case, got divorced and, and was able to marry her partner, but. And we're going to just talk specifically about women because I think the process sometimes is a little different for men. But um, I want to go. What? And everybody has a different story. I guess my curiosity. My I think what's really important is: Did you get married? Or this is my question: Did you get married because you felt that? Well, I'm attracted to women. Or you were aware of that, but it's easier, particularly talking about the '70s, to be 
marry to a man and take the conventional route because it's too difficult to to be with another woman? Or was it a process of just understanding who you were and where what your sexual orientation is or was in a more, I don't know, organic or emotional way? It, it, well, um, I actually, there, there are, I represent one, one portion of women, but my particular situation, I really was, I considered myself heterosexual. I was unaware of attractions to women and maybe even unaware of attractions to men. I think that I just was, grew up at a time where there wasn't much discussion about gay or lesbian lifestyles at all. And um, I did everything that was expected of me. I did not have any clues that I was attracted to women when I was younger. And I think for me it was a question of somewhat of circumstance. Um, I got married young at the age of 22 and started raising a family at a young age and was basically pretty happy with what I was doing, but held on to a deep secret that I didn't feel like I was quite as madly in love or passionate in my marriage as it seemed other people were. But I don't think it was until I was in my late 20s that I started to have time to, and also met, began to meet women. I was working in women's uh, organization and met women who were lesbians and began to question my marital relationship and uh, began a questioning of my life. And that was when I, at that time, I began to feel some attraction to a close friend and who was lesbian. So for me, it was almost a process, a developmental process where I began to have the time to examine what I was doing and had contact with people who were different from myself. Do you think so, this will happen less and less? I mean, you have, you're a social worker and mm-hmm. you see women who are coming out in all different kinds of circumstances. Do you think that your experience will, will prob- not be duplicated as much since uh, at least in terms of, you know, because now the outside culture and society allows for gay relationships, and, you know, we've evolved politically, socially, in all of those arenas uh, since the 70s um, yeah. in terms of accepting alternative lifestyles, which mm-hmm. will probably not be alternative in 10 years or so. But you know what I'm saying? Like, um, Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I would say it's going, there are going to be and already are some changes for many women, but I think you have to keep in mind that there's a large portion of our country and of our religious institutions that still promote um, homophobia and don't, you know, essentially say that uh, having a gay relationship is wrong. And there are many people who grow up in areas that aren't near big cities that are very rural. Um, I do a lot of telephone consultation with people from all across the country, and they there are many places where it's still highly unacceptable. So that um, if you grow up in a family where that's not viewed as an option, um, that's still going to affect the way uh, a person makes her decisions. Do you think some women then choose, they know that they're 
lesbians, they know that they're gay, but they decide, well, I'm going to get married for the reasons that, you know, because I live no, in this... No, I don't think it's that simple. No, I wish it... It, it, it really, you know, it, it looks like it should be that simple, but it, it really isn't. I think what happens is um, a, a woman may have some sense of attraction to another, let's say, another girl at a younger age, and she notes it, but doesn't take their, take it seriously or just puts it on the back burner and doesn't pay attention to it. So it isn't as if she knows that she's gay. It's not clear like that because she can make it less important or can kind of ignore the signals. And that's more likely to happen where people really, when they get married, they generally think, this is it. This is where the direction I'm going. And they may even think I'm bisexual, and but I can love this man, and I do love this man, and I can make my life with this person. And it's not, um, it's just that they don't give themselves the permission to explore that side of themselves. Yeah, it's, it, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm realizing, and this is what I, I want to get into, because it, it is far more complicated, I guess. And, yeah. uh, and um, as I said, uh, my friends who are gay, uh, there's always a different story, and, and like as you're describing, different for each person. And yeah. the, the issues, though, there are general issues that you talk about in your book, obviously. Like coming out, I mean, because this, is a, this is a, uh, can be a major um issue coming out to husbands and children if you've been married for a long period of time. Talk about that, because um, I know personally a, a couple women who've been in those circumstances, yeah. and that's not easy. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think coming out uh, when you come to the realization of being attracted and having that be your primary attraction when you're married is a very different experience than a single woman who realizes that she is gay or lesbian. And um, the main difference is that you have this whole family that you care about, that you love, and that you feel responsible for, a husband and, and usually children. And the issue of uh, your, you've developed this heterosexual life that is the way that everybody in your life sees you, and you are going to impact your decision about what to do impacts all these people that you worry about. And um, so I think the, the concerns that women have, probably the number one concern if they have kids is the kids. And secondly, it's the husband who most women really care deeply about their husbands and maybe even feel like they love them uh, or even but just not in the same way that they feel about a woman and so uh so there's a lot of pain and guilt that come up in this process and there it it often takes a lot of time trying to decide essentially am i going to put my happiness in front of what they think will impact their their loved one's happiness. 
those are some of the same issues, of course, when you go through a divorce and you heterosexual to heterosexual. Right. right? I right. mean, yeah, uh, you know. Right. Uh, and then you add, but and that's true. That is absolutely true. There are some very similar um, issues and step family issues and things like that. But I think the other piece of it is that um, going through a sexual reorientation. It even happens for the woman herself. It, it's hard for her to believe that after all these years, she's going to redefine herself. And that that's a very difficult process. And then her husband and her kids have to go through that too. And that that's a very difficult process. Do you think I see I mean, a difference between like young people and... Um those of, say, our generation. I mean, I go to the different high schools, and now they have, well, they have proms for gay and lesbian students. I mean, you're right, maybe not in small towns in in Iowa, but in some of the larger cities or even medium-sized cities. And some of these kids are just right, which I think is a really positive thing. I mean, they're right out there and not afraid to express their sexuality. Um, Some of them and this is interesting, in talking to some of the kids at the Pride Center here, I'm in uh, Albany, New York, will um, tell they, they they kind of come out as, especially the women, as bisexual. Well, uh-huh. Do you talk about that? And, and they've been accused of, well, you, you're bisexual because you don't really want to come out, so you say you're bisexual, and that's more acceptable than saying you're a lesbian. Well, I, I really think that um, you're talking about... Um, young women who are really in the process of trying to define their sexuality. And I, there is such a thing as bisexuality. I mean, it does exist. You, that doesn't mean there may not be a preference. You know, that they're probably, even when a person is bisexual, often feels a preference for one uh, sex or the other. But uh, I, I do think sometimes, Sometimes it's a stage, you know, where, uh, and, and thank goodness that it's even considered an option to be bisexual. And I think that, that we all, women in particular, go through our own gradual self-definition. And I, I mean, one of the things that, in fact, is different in my updated book is my discussion about sexual orientation, because I think it, it's being discussed uh, differently today than it was when I first wrote the book, um, in the sense that the feeling that women's sexuality has much more fluidity to it, and that at depending upon what your what who the context of your life will have a lot to do with what happens with your sexuality. You may you know like kids who go to a school where there's a support group for. Um, gays and lesbians may very well explore that part of themselves. But if they go to a school, a re- let's say a fundamentalist Christian school, they, they would not explore that side of themselves, and it might be later in life when they come in contact with a different uh, setting, or they may see a movie that raises the questions for them, or they may go online when they have a question. So it's more contextualized today, the, the, the development of self-identity around sexuality. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, and it, I wanna, it brings me to the point of, um, I want to ask you, um, what do you 
think are some of the advantages? I mean, because of, let's say, or are there any, let's, and you're giving yourself perhaps as an example, I mean, you're, you were married, heterosexual relationship, children, and I understand you're a grandmother now, um, and you have uh, had, a, you had a partner for many, many years. Are there any advantages in being um, a same-sex family to uh, two women, two moms? Uh, well, um, I mean, I you know, as in any same-sex relationship, roles are a little bit they're more open in terms of what you know falling into uh, any particular roles in the relationship, but. I, for my kids in particular, we they, we were living in a suburban area that was pretty. Uh, mom, it, it was you know a white middle class uh, neighborhood with not a whole lot of contact with difference. And one of the things that I I think is uh, almost like an equalizing experience um, when the kids had to adjust to or were in the process of adjusting to my new lifestyle, I, my life brought me in contact with many more different kinds of people. And I think that, um, I think that the gay community consists of many, many different kinds of people. And there were racial differences and economic differences. And the people I became friends with were more varied, um, more varied in the way that they presented themselves as women. And so I think it just expands the, the, their world of what can be considered normal for women and for people. So it opened relationship. up, yeah, well, that, that sounds like a, a, certainly a positive outcome. I mean, it just opened up a whole world of new people and new experiences and, I guess, mm-hmm. new perspectives and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, let me just talk, because we only have a few minutes left. What about your clients? Because you see women at all different stages of coming out or deciding to come out. or um, and, and reading your book, they all there are some very specific differences with each one of their stories. Do you want to, I mean, we've been kind of focusing on your story, but right. um, any that stand out with, with your patients that, you know, you, you could share with us that may help others who are considering um, coming out or, or, who's, or in similar positions? Well, um, I don't know that there's um, one particular type of uh, client that I would focus on. What I would say is that I'm actually in the minority. I would say most of the women who I work with um, have had some clues in their earlier life that they were attracted to women. And in their process of finding themselves attracted, part of their process of, of exploration is looking back. And it can be helpful to look back and recognize that there were some some clues, um, and I, I also think that there's not one type of person that you know we get caught up in in the labels of what we think lesbians are like, and usually it's not ourselves that fits fits into whatever <laughs> that is, and so um, I, I, I wouldn't say there's one type of person that stands out for me, but I think that what I would say is that. The majority of women 
do after going through a very ambivalent period of time eventually make a decision um, that they feel they can live with, and it's based on their values and their priorities. And um, they generally come out of it feeling more authentic and uh, happier. Yeah. And, and I guess, the, to me, if you come out of it feeling more authentic, happier, uh, it's sort of your truth, it's who you are, that the people around you, uh, your children, your spouse or your ex-spouse or your parents mm-hmm. um, are, are going to benefit from that. Everyone's going to have a better relationship and a better connection. I mean, right. it, it, yeah, otherwise, I think the whole thing, and it, this is an issue I think that, that, that I see and I've seen in, in my practice in the past, I mean, when one is hiding things, and I think that is so, one of the, you know, having to hide who you are is so detrimental to right. And it's and yes. sometimes it's hiding it from themselves as well as from other people. You know that's that's you know so so this process of kind of you know giving yourself permission to stop hiding things even from yourself is a very important piece. Yeah, I think and, and it it takes so much energy so much yeah. wasted energy, so much negative energy to be hiding from yourself and to be yeah. hiding from others. And you can, once you do accept who you are, I mean, then you can, all that energy can go to positive things, positive yeah. relationships, positive work, all of that, because we right. only have so much energy. I, I just think that's, to me, that's an important issue, yeah. important point. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So now, Lavender Visions is your website. Yeah. Um, and uh, if anybody is interested in um, contacting you or contacting the website, they just go to lavendervisions.com. Um, right, and um, I, there are a lot of resources on my website. I have, um, uh, I have online resources. I have, uh, you, you know, I do the telephone consultations, but there's also an online community of people who are going through this. So there are a lot of um, helpful resources if they are in this situation, or even if they know someone who's in this situation. Some some people who are involved with a married woman who's going through this go onto my website. So uh, yeah, it's it's, um, it's lavendervisions.com. Uh, Joanne, what about? Let's take the children or take teenagers, for instance, mm-hmm. and perhaps they're going through obviously their own. Uh, identity crisis, as we all do. Um, right. What if they suspect or feel perhaps my mom is a lesbian? I mean, they feel this, but no one said anything. Where do they have? Where can they go? Because you know all the family secrets and those kinds of things. If let's say you have a teenager, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, and perhaps they they they're sensing something within their the, the their parents' relationship. What do they do? I mean, could they go to your website or their resources for? Well, I don't know whether. I haven't had that, you know, I think one of the things that happens is, and one of the reasons I I really try to help women to get honest and open and communicative with their kids, because if the parent is not communicating, the kid really tends to feel like, first of all, they question their sense of reality. You know, they they sense this thing, and they and since nobody's saying anything, they don't know whether to trust themselves or not. And I don't know what I mean. They could certainly go to my website and and get 
get some information, but the information really has to come from the parent. And I can't, I, I can't even stress enough about how important it is if a parent in any way senses that the kid has any suspicion at all that it's best to really start talking because it really hurts kids who don't feel like they can talk about it. And um, it's not, you know, women often think they're protecting their children from something that they're uncomfortable with, but in fact it's hurting their kids because it's teaching them that something that they their gut is telling them is not being talked about and they start questioning their own instincts or their own senses. You know, it's often uh, it's what you don't say <laughs> that sort of governs the mood of the family and not necessarily yeah. what you do say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you have to get that out. Well, we have a couple minutes left. What do we want to leave listeners with um, besides your book, which is really um, um, a great book? I want to mention... Um, the title again, Living Two Lives, Married to a Man man, and in Love with a Woman. And it's uh, Joanne Fleischer that we've been talking to today. And she is a licensed social worker, licensed certified social worker. Um, and you can go to her website at lavendervisions.com. So um, what will we say to our, our well, listeners? I think that um, if anybody is going through this, particular questioning that um, they, I would suggest that they try to think, give themselves the kind of compassion they would give to a friend, because I think that women often are extremely hard on themselves and carry such heavy guilt that, um, you know, the guilt doesn't end up being helpful. I mean, it's normal, but it's, it's something that really has to be dealt with that this is not uh, something that they did intentionally and that they really need to find a way to forgive themselves and uh, recognize that everybody will be happier in the end once, once they figure out what's the right path for themselves. Yeah, I think that that's well said. I mean, you have to be it's, uh, feel good about who you are, and and you know, I we want to get rid of that whole, you know, feeling shameful about who you are, but be positive about who you are. And, right. Yeah, and and well, it's been great having you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine, yeah. for inviting me. Thank, I yeah, appreciate thank, it. Okay. Thanks for sharing your story, Joanne Fleischer, uh, licensed. Certified social worker. Her website is lavendervisions.com. And uh, her new book is Living Two Lives, Married to a Man and in Love with a Woman. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.